It really has been good to be here and see uh, this beautiful church in Indianapolis, one of uh, the great cities of the Midwest, and a privilege to take, ooh, boy, I can't get going here, a uh, privilege to get to know some of you in the hallways and uh, now to give you God's word. We already had a reading of Matthew chapter 25. I want to read one other passage, and it is from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, which is also a theme verse this morning. For those of you who like to know what's coming, the theme is God's faithfulness and how that plays out in our faithfulness at work. So it's our faithfulness at work and three ideas. The big first idea is that there are certain biblical concepts that will allow us to be faithful at work. I'll hit those quickly. And then secondly, we can be faithful at work because he sees what we're doing and sees its importance even if we don't. One of the great problems at work is we don't see how important it is. I want to dwell on that a little while. And then I want to talk about faithfulness in ambition. I want to speak to ambitious people and bless godly ambition in the last, last few minutes that we have together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 and this is what it says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I ask you would give us a desire to be faithful to you at work because we know that you have first been faithful to us. Help us to see you, the faithful Lord, working through us in our labors, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, slightly changing some details, this is absolutely a true story. A man named Mike was the CFO of a medium big media company, net income about one and a half billion dollars a year. They had some TV shows, some radio shows, some magazines in a variety of markets. And then the company, Mike's a Christian, Mike's an elder in his church, then the company decided to diversify. They didn't consult him. He's the CFO, not the CEO. They decided to diversify, and they bought the Jerry Springer show. And then that was point one. And then, and then somehow they decided to buy a soft, small, soft porn producer, and his friends, who knew what he did for a living, and his church said, we told you this would happen someday. We, we told you to get out of the media. We knew you'd be forced to compromise your faith. You need to resign immediately. And Mike said, um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm CFO for a reason. And so he decided to work in his company to rebuke them, basically, and to get them to divest themselves of the Jerry Springer show and the little porn producer, and he came up with a strategy. And the strategy involved him going to the next board meeting. And at that board meeting, he told the board members that he was going to have to tell the regulators of his state that they were violating their charter. Because their charter did not allow them to produce this kind of quote-unquote entertainment. And someone at the board meeting said, well, Mike, there's, there's nothing in the name of this porn producer, especially, you know, it's like sunshine products. This is, nobody is going to know what it is, and so you don't need to report it. And Mike said, no, they will know what it is because I'm going to tell them. And the board member said, you'll do what? 
He said, I'm going to tell them because I am morally and legally bound to do so. Now, he risked his career, and he won. And they sold Jerry Springer, and they sold the porn producer, and he worked another 10 years at that company because he wanted to be faithful at work. And not just individualistically, I'm going to stay away from sin. He wanted to be faithful to his entire corporation, everybody around him. That was his goal. It was high risk, and he was faithful. Now, what what is it that allows us to be faithful at work? I'm going to give you just four ideas that are biblical ideas that allow us to be faithful at work. And when I say work, I do not mean paid labor only. We're working when we're taking care of children. We're working when we're uh, building a garden. We're working when we're concentrated in our volunteer efforts. If you stop by for five minutes, I'm not sure. But if you're in there for hours and hours making a conference like this work, that's work too. So big idea number one is that work is good because God created the world as an act of his own intensive labors, creative genius put into play, and he wants us to work because we're made in his image. Work is good in itself. Today it's fallen, today it's difficult, but God made Adam and Eve to work in the garden before the fall. Now, secular society tells us the work is evil. And in fact, a lot of people think the work is a curse, and the less you work, the better off you are, and if you can get a menial servant or a machine to do it, you've really done well. But God created us in his image and he is a worker, therefore we should work and work is good in itself. We like to solve problems at work because God is a problem solver. The biggest problem is a problem of sin and death and God formulated and executed a plan of redemption. And that's why we like to formulate and execute plans. We are delighted when we finish a job well because God is delighted. Jesus exulted when the work of redemption was done and said, it is finished into into your hands, Father. I commend my spirit because my work is done. And that's why we like to work and get things done because we're made in God's image. That's number one. Number two, manual labor and physical labor are both blessed by God. Many people think that the most important thing we can do is shove all difficult or menial labor onto other people. Manual labor is demeaning. But you know what? Jesus worked with his hands. We say he was a carpenter, but... but the word that's used there actually means he, he worked with his hands with stone and with metal and with wood. He was an artisan. He was a physical laborer. The apostle Paul was a tent maker. He sewed leather. That's manual labor. Of course, they were also mental laborers. They're both also teachers. The Bible says in one place, let the thief steal no more. Let him labor doing honest work with his hands so he may have something to share with others. Now, when we hear that, we think, oh, we shouldn't steal. But you should also hear, work with your hands. It's good to work with our hands. That's number two. Number three, God calls everyone to full-time service. That includes nine-year-olds and 90-year-olds and 49-year-olds. Everyone is called to full-time service. Everyone can pray and should pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, it largely means may I be an agent of your kingdom in the intensive labors of my hands and my mind. When we begin our day, we should say, Lord, may my mind and my hands do your work. Again, whether paid or not, whether in the home 
or in a technical workplace. That means that we don't believe the idea that some work is sacred and some work is secular. Now, if we have a sacred-secular split, we would say that, you know, pastors are sacred, and we would probably add that uh, kindergarten teachers and junior high teachers are also sacred, and doctors and nurses, and, and maybe we'd say people involved today in defensive wars are also doing sacred work. But it's all sacred. The work of a truck driver, a delivery man, the work of somebody who engages in honest financial work, it's all sacred work. Let me say it a different way, to stick with the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. When, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying and God is answering by rousing farmers and bakers and people who work in, I don't know, restaurants and in grocery stores to get the bread to us each day. And, and when we pray for traveling mercies, we're really hoping that God is moving engineers and people who build roads to make safe roads and safe planes and safe cars and take care of them. Whatever we do. There's a woman I know, I'm gonna call her Rachel. This is a true story, that's not her name because they didn't ask permission. But she's a librarian at a Christian school. And she has an idea of what books the kids in her school should read. She reads to them and she hands them books. And she wants her books to obviously be somehow or other uh, consistent with the Christian faith. And some are explicitly Christian, a lot are not. She wants the books to be well written, not just, you know, good values. And she wants the art to be good. And if the art is bad and the writing is bad, she throws the book out, even though people donate the book and don't know where the book went. And if they say, why did you get rid of this book? It's because it's so poorly written. I can't read this to the children. It's not good for them. And the art is so bad. And did you notice in this book that all the adults are idiots? And that's inconsistent with honor your father and your mother. And so that book is gone. And that's sacred work, putting good books that form little children well. She understands whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a woman named Abby. That is actually her name. And when she graduated from college with a, an economics and math degree, a large corporation wanted to hire her right away. And she had a job that bored her to tears. She was in a tiny windowless office, crunching numbers, and trying to set price points on sweaters and dresses for middle-aged women. And she was very young and athletic. And, and she's trying to set price points to sell as many of these sweaters and dresses as she can. Sweaters and dresses she wouldn't be caught dead in. Garments she despised. And she had two bosses. One was unkind and one was very wise. And the wise one said, Abby, I want you to go. Somehow he detected her attitude toward this. And he said, I want you to go to our flagship store. And I want you to just stand there and watch women as they approach the sweaters and the pants and the dresses that you market. And so she stood by a pillar over here and watched people come up to the clothes. And she noticed that they liked the clothes. And she heard one particular conversation from some people who traveled a distance, evidently, to get to the store. They lived out in the countryside somewhere, and they weren't wealthy people at all. And, 
And the price on these sweaters was good because she'd lowered the price so, the, so more would sell. And the women walked up and they turned the sweaters inside out and examined the seams and they said, this is good fabric and this is well made. These will really last. I wish, one of them said, I wish I could buy three of them if I could afford them. I would buy three. I think I can buy one or two. And it was transformative for Abby. She said, I allowed that woman to, draw, to buy something that I wouldn't like, but she did. And who am I to decide what a middle-aged woman ought to like to wear? She rebuked herself and realized that she was serving these three women that came in to look at those garments that she helped market. My point, of course, is we have a hard time seeing the value of our work. And that's why I read Matthew chapter 25 a little while ago. You know, the big, the big idea is that our works show our faith. We're not saved because of our works, but if we really believe, it shows. And so Jesus says to us at the end of life, when we stand before him, he's going to say to us, come you who are blessed, because I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was in prison, you visited me. And the righteous will say, When? We don't remember that. What are you talking about? When did I ever feed you, Lord Jesus? When did I ever clothe you or shelter you or nurse you when you were sick? And, and Jesus will say, well, as, you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Meaning you're serving Jesus as you serve the people around you, which means if you, my friends, have any role in bringing food to the hungry, that could mean you make farm implements. It could mean you make fertilizer. It could mean that you watch the logistical chain that gets Wheaties from the Wheaties factory onto your breakfast table. If you have any role, Jesus is pleased. If you do anything, if you're a hydrological engineer, if you do anything that gets water to the thirsty, the Lord smiles. If you do anything that brings food and clothing and shelter, to people to meet their daily needs. If you do anything in the entire system that brings the entire system, including billing and nursing and, and washing things, in the entire system that brings healthcare, if you do anything that cares for those who are most down and out, prisoners, who, who has less than a prisoner in the ancient world? Honestly, nobody. And if you take care of the nobodies of the world, somehow the Lord smiles. You know, our culture tells us we should look for fulfillment at work. I'm not against that. Most ideas that are in our culture that are almost universally embraced have some connection to biblical ideas. The Bible does say the Lord will bless you in the work of your hands and your joy will be complete in one place. In Deuteronomy, we should enjoy our work. But above all, we enjoy our work, but above all, we should be loving our neighbor and serving those around us. And again, whether you see it or not. The great sorrow for most people is they don't see the value of their work. So the ninth grade math teacher doesn't know as, as he watches the kids in class that one of those students became an engineer and built the bridge she drives to school on now. And the art teacher doesn't know that young woman whose head was always down, became an architect and she designed the building that he admires, or she admires, on the way to work. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I led my school in being put out in the hall. 
There was a boy who was worse than me, but he was a pyromaniac and they you know, rightly feared he'd burn the school down. I was the second worst boy and I was put in the hall nine times, nine times. And I wrote a letter to my teacher when I was in grad school working toward my PhD. Um, I'm gonna call her Mrs. Wolf today. That's kind of close to her real name. And I, I wrote her a letter that said this. Dear Mrs. Wolf, you taught me in fourth grade and I caused you endless grief, sidebar. It was illegal, but she read the Bible to us every morning and we prayed every morning. So I'm assuming she's a believer. I caused you endless grief. I didn't listen to you because I thought my job was to make everybody around me laugh. You moved me away from my friends within a week. You put me in a corner and surrounded me with well-behaved and silent girls. You scolded me for failing to reach my potential at every turn. You punished me with C's I didn't deserve and I'm writing to thank you for it. You made the life of a naughty boy miserable. Thank you. Because I moved after fourth grade with my parents and I was afraid to be naughty in fifth grade and I accidentally got straight A's and it felt so good <laughs> that I've kept it up ever since. I'm gonna be getting my PhD soon. And I got a letter back a few weeks later. Dear Mr. Doriani, Mrs. Wolf would have been so glad to receive your letter. She died a month ago. But if she's with the Lord, she knows. The Lord knew. The Lord knew that she had this idea in her head. The Bible says in one place that discipline has to be painful. And she said to herself, I'm gonna make this boy hurt for his good. Right? even if nobody sees and nobody cares, because the Lord sees. And that's the encouragement to you as you ask the question, does my work mean anything? Physicians ask, will this guy stop smoking? Will this woman take her medicine? And you can't tell. Administrators ask questions like, if I disappeared, would the machine grind along just fine without me? If you are ever involved in fast food work, a lot of us are at some point in our life, if you're ever involved in, in serving fast food, you think to yourself sometimes, I, I wish these people would see the ingredients and how much salt and fat is in this and they would never come to my, to my carryout window. But what they don't know is that as they're praying nobody comes, there's somebody else driving across Kansas and praying, dear Lord, let some place be open so we can eat, so we can get to our destination without being starving tonight. And you're doing God's work as you push those french fries out. You're doing God's work. You're feeding people who are praying, where can I find a meal? I want you to know that whatever you're doing, you know, you fill it in your way. So I've given you some big ideas that'll help you be faithful, right? And I've also given you, um, the great principle that the Lord sees your work so that it counts, even if it seems to you at times that nobody's paying attention and nobody cares, the Lord cares. The third thing I wanna do is address people who are ambitious and people who dare to hope that they can make a difference in this world who dare to hope they can change their little corner of the world. Not change the world, that's too ambitious. But to change their corner of the world, that's a little different. Now, I've quoted a couple times this weekend, for those of you who were here Friday and Saturday, a really important verse for these purposes, and that's 
Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Luke 12, 48 is kind of a convoluted verse, so I'm going to give it uh, the traditional translation and a slightly uh, lighter translation. It goes like this. Luke 12, 48, ESV says, everyone to whom much was given, from him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. All right, that's a little complicated. I'm gonna give you a slightly lighter translation. To whom God has given much, God expects much. If much is bestowed, more is demanded. I'll say it in ordinary English. If God gave you a lot, he expects a lot. And you can sit in your chair and ask the question of yourself, has God given me a lot? Has God given me maybe more? Maybe more than some other people. There's a runner named uh, Ryan, Mark Ryan. That's not his name. What's his name? Ryan. What's his name? Jim Ryan. I don't know why I said that. Jim Ryan started running when he was 14 years old just because he wanted to join the team, because that was a cool thing to do at his high school. And he started off running a mile like seven minutes and 58 seconds, in case you're wondering, that's not real fast. By the end of his freshman year, he was running a mile in four minutes and 20 seconds. In case you're wondering, that's really fast. He was setting records two years after he started running because God gave him the ability to run. There's some, there was some raw capacity in that boy that enabled him to be a runner. And God has given all of us gifts. And he's also given you and me not just innate gifts, things you can do that other people can't do, things you can see other people can't see. And he's also given you opportunities to hone your gifts. He sent you mentors and guides and teachers and friends And if he's given you all this, he expects more. You should look at these gifts God gives you as yours, yes, but they're also God's. And he says, I bestow this to you as a loan. I'm gonna give it to you and I'm gonna ask you what you do with it. We give an account for ourselves. And that's a privilege. The privilege of serving other people. Now, in our culture today, and especially in Christian subcultures, Ambition is a dirty word, and there's a reason for that. The reason is the Bible often condemns selfish ambition. And in this world, a lot of ambition is indeed very selfish, self-oriented. What can I get out of it? The wealth or the prestige that I can receive. But there's also such a thing as a good ambition. The apostle Paul had a good ambition. In Romans 15, 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach Christ to preach the gospel where Christ is unknown. That's his ambition. And it's a very sensible ambition for him at that time because first of all, God commissioned him to do it. That was explicit from the moment of his conversion. But he was also able to do it because he was a Jew, well steeped in the learning of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said. And well trained by the greatest rabbis of the day. But he also knew Latin and he also knew Greek and he could speak in Aramaic and Hebrew and Latin and Greek, and he was, he was trained. If you look at his speeches, he quotes well-known but also almost unknown philosophers and poets. He sprinkles it in because he's an educated person. And he's a Jew, but he's a Roman citizen. And so who would be better equipped in all the world than to go into pioneering ministry, find a synagogue, preach there, get kicked out, get beaten maybe, 
And then move over into the agora and the marketplace and preach to the Greeks and to the Latins. He was equipped for it. And so he did it. He had a rare gift, and it was a strategic gift. I want to tell you about a man. I'm changing his name. His name is Clay Porter. He's a surgeon. He's a well-known surgeon. He had pioneering, he devised pioneering methods of surgery that have saved lives all over the world. Hundreds of people studied under him. Hundreds of people have heard his lectures on every continent, but Antarctica, he is the holder of a prestigious chair at a prestigious research hospital. And after learning all about the surgeries that he was going to do on soft tissues in the head behind the eyes and in the sinuses and in the throat and the tongue, he began to notice that he didn't just operate, he also treated people post-operatively, and he noticed that a lot of times these tissues, like their saliva glands and their tongues and their sinuses, were damaged terribly, and this would include children and young adults, not people who are 79 or only have a few years to live, but, but people were, were healed of their cancer and then would live their entire life with their soft tissues damaged by radiation and chemotherapy. And he started asking the question, is this really necessary? Are lives being changed by, for the better? Are lives being spared by these intensive chemo and radiation treatments? And, and he began to suspect there was reason to believe, he thought, that it isn't that helpful. He's also a very devout Christian. He wants to be faithful in his work. And he believes in all his heart that God's the creator and designed the world well. And although the body's now fallen, which he sees when he treats cancer, he believes God also put remarkable healing and restorative powers in the human body. And he's, he said to me, I want to do nothing to interfere with that. I want to let God's powers of healing do their work. And so I started questioning, he said, all the chemo and all the radiation. And of course, the chemo and radiation experts said, who are you and why are you in our lane? And life got very difficult, even though he was publishing well and his results were being reproduced. It got so difficult, he finally decided he had to leave the prestigious chair and go somewhere else that recognized and supported. It came out of a Christian perspective that would support his work and his reasoning. It was controversial. He wanted to change the system. And he wanted to change the system for two reasons. He wanted to change the system because he loved his patients who were right there in front of him and he saw them suffering. He saw their saliva glands blasted into oblivion. He saw that people would go the rest of their lives without being able to swallow well or articulate well because of damage in their tongue. And he was willing to take some risks, big risks, pay a price to love his patients. But he also wanted to serve his Lord because he believes that God made the body in such a way that it can heal itself, not by accident or evolution, that God made it that way. So I would say to you who are ambitious, what, what happened, godly ambition, is what happened is he had um, a spontaneous insight that he then organized over a span of 20 years. He saw suffering his patients, he asked questions, and it took him about 20 years to win the medical establishment in his little lane of the world. And that's the way it often goes. So um, I've been to India only one time, very transformative trip there for me. And, and one of the transformative things that I saw was a, 
an orphanage. A thousand, almost a thousand children, 880 children, were singing and dancing and running and joyful, and it's just so different from most of the land of India, um, which is under the oppression of false religions. And I spoke to the leader of the orphanage, and how did this get started? How did you become such a huge orphanage? And he said, yeah, it just started with one dying Hindu couple dropping their baby off on our doorstep. And there the baby was, and we took it in. And word spread. And then there was another baby and another baby, and then there were six. And then they had to decide, shall we get organized or not? And they decided, let's get organized. And when I was there, there were eight orphanages and 7,500 orphans cared for. Spontaneous act of love toward one, two, three, four, five, six children, then get organized. That's the way it so often is. A spontaneous insight, a spontaneous sense. There's something the Lord wants me to do. And then, and then let's get organized. I'm gonna label something, I'm gonna throw it out. I've, I've said to Brad, who's, by the way, a nice guy and kind of funny, don't you think? <laughs> a little bit of a sense of humor. And um, I said, Brad, I'm gonna throw out some ideas because I know Brad, I mean, Brad invited me. I think Mark had something to do with it, but I think he's kind of autonomous on this stuff to some degree. Anyway, I was invited, and I, and I know that Brad wants to continue to talk about faith and work with people, and so I'm gonna throw out some ideas that he may help you develop. And it goes like this, to, to make a difference, to go from a spontaneous desire to serve God and love your neighbor takes maybe four Ps, four Ps. The first one is you have to have a principle. You have to believe that you're actually working for something. So Dr. Porter said, I believe the body has the power to heal itself. And Mrs. Wolf said, I believe that discipline has to hurt. The Bible says that in one place. I wanna hurt those bad boys. And Abby said, my principle is that clothing is good if the person who wears it likes it, not if I like it. That's the principle. Then you have to have some passion, passion enough to persevere. And that can be a passion if you're in a position of formal leadership that allows you to you know, fight for a budget and, and get purpose statements written and, and get programs enacted and to give a sense of urgency and infectious enthusiasm that allows you to recruit a team and push through obstacles and take risks and get money you know, allocated because you're a leader, you can get these things done and so you need passion for that. But then there are other people who are working all by themselves very quietly like Mrs. Wolf who says, I'm gonna make it hurt. I'm gonna make it hurt so when the pain goes away, those boys, those bad boys, feel that it's good to not be in pain. And nobody may notice Mrs. Wolf's approach. In fact, parents may be upset at her and she's got to persevere. So you have to have passion and perseverance. Number one, a principle. Number two, passion and perseverance. Number four, two and three, passion and perseverance. Number four is a position. A position can be formal or informal. If you want to make a difference in your corner of the world, your authority may simply be that you're the mom of these four kids. That's a position of authority. Or you may have a position in which you are officially the leader of communication or manufacturing or safety or you, you hold a prestigious chair in surgery. It's a major hospital. 
Or maybe you're just the schedule maker for a team of 20 people, but you have a position and you say to yourself, God has put me here to do something. And I'm not gonna pretend I have no authority. I'm not gonna pretend that there's nothing to be ambitious about. So we work heartily for the Lord. For the Lord, not for men. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I'm trying to do for these minutes is encourage you. Encourage you in your daily work, humble work, ordinary work, the Lord sees it, and also encourage you to maybe try to change your corner of the world if God has that for you. But I'm also mindful that when I say all this, I'm probably arousing a feeling of guilt in some people. And, and you think, you know what? I used to have a passion and it's gone. And the truth of the matter is, I'm serving my income and pleasing my master, my boss, my supervisor, way more than I should be. And I had a principle, but I gave up on it a long time ago. And if, if that's you, let me tell you again that if your work is incomplete and flawed, even sinful, Jesus finished his work. You didn't finish your work, but he finished his. And if you didn't finish your work and you say, Lord, I have not been the worker I ought to be, I've lost my passion, I didn't persevere, you can also say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you didn't lose your passion and that you did keep your position as Savior and Lord as Redeemer. And you did persevere to the end to offer salvation to all of us who fall short in our work, and that is all of us. And so I ask you to you know, consider who you are. You're kind of like Rachel, librarian, just getting the right books in there for the kids, five and 10 at a time, or Abby getting clothing into the hands of people who need clothing, or, or you're like Dr. Porter, maybe God has something big for you to do. But whatever it is, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us work to do and for making us with energy and passion and ideas and, Lord, for picking us up when we fall short of our goals, of your goals. We thank you, Lord, for finishing your work, even if we don't, even when we don't finish ours, and for loving us when we do our best and when we don't, because you are our Father, our Redeemer, our Lord, our King. In your name we pray, amen.